Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to Single-Minded Conversations. Greetings from Brooklyn, where I knocked over a giant cup of water uh, 60 seconds before I was supposed to go live on this. But um, the damage was mostly restricted to the top of like a metal trash can in my kitchen. So very close call. Very exciting stuff going on here. Uh, I'm Jesse Single. I'm the host of this thing. I'm a journalist and podcaster. I do some other stuff, too. Uh, thank you for joining me. Um, most of today's show is just going to be me taking whatever questions you have. Uh, so feel free to hop in the queue if you'd like to do that. I wanted to do an opening spiel about a really good piece David French wrote. Um, you know, David is one of the smartest conservatives around. He's, just, he's a never Trump type, uh, writes for the dispatch. Uh, he wrote an article called the places where truth goes to die. And the sub headline is how we wall ourselves off from reality. And I, I thought he did a really good job sort of giving a name and a description to a phenomenon I'd noticed, but uh, hadn't really been able to describe eloquently. So I just want to take you guys through this argument really quick, and then we can talk about this. So um, French's article is pegged to a controversy at the University of Pennsylvania. Long story short, a transgender woman on the swim team there who previously swam in college as a male, so an accomplished swimmer, uh, uh, swimming as a female, in accordance with NCAA rules, she's been dominating. And her teammates, or some of them are elite, at least, are pissed off about this, but don't feel they can speak out about it openly. Instead, they've been uh, leaking stuff anonymously to OutKick, which is a sports website that, um, contrarian, conservative, I don't know what you want to call it, but but it's not sort of a mainstream liberal uh, news website. Um, French explains that he was in trying to lay out his argument about this on Twitter, he was very worried about phrasing um, and about making his point, which is that I don't think this will be very controversial to most people in this room. Biological sex is, is one of those grounds on which it, it is legitimate to discriminate. Sometimes we might have legitimate reasons to do that. Here's what French wrote. What was my struggle? I wasn't afraid of cancellation. The Twitter world is full of broadsides against Thomas, that's the last name of the swimmer, and the NCAA. And there are legions of right-wing voices who relish taking on this issue and doing so as contemptuously and snarkily as possible and bask in thunderous applause of their tribe. Besides, thanks to my readers, I'm pretty tough to cancel anyway. No, my struggle was simply this. How do I make my point in a way that skeptical and hostile readers will hear it and consider it, rather than simply dismissing it out of hand as the bigoted rantings of a hateful evangelical. After all, I don't just want to be heard. I want to persuade. I believe what I'm saying is true, and I want readers to at least consider my words. Take transgender rights or virtually any contentious issue, and you'll find that there are a million different ways that people will not just reject your reasoning, but refuse to engage with you at all. You're the quote-unquote wrong speaker. Who wants to hear from a cis evangelical? You chose the quote-unquote wrong words. Did he use the acceptable pronouns? Was his language offensive in any other way? You have the, quote, wrong priorities. American democracy is in peril, and we're talking about a single trained swimmer at a single school? Uh, that's the end of the excerpt. From here, David French zooms out. He calls this tactic a process foul, which I think is a great name for it. Basically, this is a derailing tactic where you don't want to argue on the merits, so you call a process foul. The person making the claim you don't want to dispute uh, is the wrong identity or it's the wrong time for them to make that argument. They made it during pride is my favorite. Like there's a month of the year you can't make certain arguments uh, or there are just bigger concerns right now. So why would you focus on this? A, a form of whataboutism. None of that has to do with the actual argument itself. It's clear why this can be corrosive to our ability to talk about stuff. Uh, here's as French writes, quote, our concerns about process can overwhelm our concerns about truth. 
And our sense of entitlement about process can completely wall us off from hearing, much less believing, difficult truths. And once you see the process objections in American politics, you can't see them. They dominate our discourse. Uh, French is on the right. I'm on the left. But I, I think he's totally right. In my neck of the woods, these sorts of process fouls dominate every discussion about everything. And I think part of the reason for that is that once you've mastered process fouls and you know how to derail a conversation, this allows you to participate in a sense in all sorts of debates without really knowing anything about anything. You know the proper noises to make up about process fouls. You can jump into the fray and just figure out who's committing what process foul, and that's your version of participating in the conversation. You can endlessly call a foul for stalling any actual discussion. And if you look around, uh, as French says, you'll see a lot of conversations online are nothing but accusations of process fouls. I think over time, this makes people and movements a lot dumber. It's really addictive to wield power in this way, in this manner that allows you to shut down any conversation you don't want to have or that your friends don't want to have. And you can often level morally charged accusations in the process. These are things humans like to do. We like to have power over others and to accuse them of shit. Uh, so some people get in this rut where they do this over and over and over. And, and since Twitter will always provide you with the right and wrong opinion to have on every issue, as soon as the issue pops up, that's basically all you need to pretend to be someone with something useful to say. You just need a knowledge of process files and you need to have the right opinion sort of spoon fed for you, which is what Twitter does. Uh, I've obviously had a lot of experience with this tactics on, on some of the issues I've written about. Obviously, the most hot button ones having to do with like gender, gender identity and race are where it pops up the most. But it's really frustrating, especially if like David French, you see your job as like, hopefully trying to persuade or at least engage with readers and listeners who don't share your politics down the line. Uh, so that is it for the spiel. And uh, we can jump straight into questions. We only have two people in the queue and, and you guys keep the show going. So definitely if anyone else wants to jump in, that would be appreciated. Jacob, what is that? Hey, Jesse, good evening. Welcome back to New York City. Thank you. So I actually was wondering about something that's probably uh, completely off topic from the normal conversations here, but I figured it could be up your alley in sort of the social sciences space. There's an entire industry out there that hides in plain sight that's kind of colloquially known as the troubled teen industry, where you've got these completely unregulated facilities all across the country, as well as in the Caribbean and Latin America, that charge parents insane fees to take in their misbehaving teenagers. And the industry is rife with allegations of abuse and corruption, and dozens of these facilities have been shut down over the years. And a lot of them rely on a diagnosis of oppositional defiant disorder, which a lot of clinicians don't believe actually exists. And I was wondering if this was something that you were at all familiar with. Yeah, when you when you mentioned that, I thought of Maya Salovitz. Yeah, she wrote a great uh, book on the topic. Yeah, so it's called, I haven't read it. I read another a couple of other, other books I really liked. It's called Help at Any Cost, How the Troubled Teen Industry Cons Parents. Yeah, I, I have very little to say about this other than that there's there's tremendous abuses in it. And I think any area where like heartstrings are involved, where people feel very vulnerable, especially those surrounding children, there's gonna be con artists and there's gonna be like really bad, sometimes harmful social science. And there's a um a great paper by a, a late clinical psychologist called Scott Lillianfield that I go back to a lot called I think it's called When Let me look it up. 
psychological treatments that yeah psychological treatments that cause harm it's from 2007 and he mentions scared straight programs where you take troubled kids and you expose them to prison and prisoners as an example of like you know these these programs might make their de- uh defined behavior worse like there's just no evidence underlying these things so um I'm gonna. I'd like to check out Maya's book. I've been meaning to read it forever. Although there's a, a large pile of books I've been meaning to read, but this is not an area where I can profess any um, special knowledge, unfortunately. Oh yeah, I I, I was just wondering because I figured it might be kind of in that category you focus on of social science. That's also kind of just bullshit. No, half baked behavioral science is absolutely something in a different universe. I could have had a chapter on it on my book. It's. I think it'd be a great subject for me to um, look into more. Yeah, and it actually became a minor subject in the two thousand. 2012 presidential campaign because a number of Latter-day Saints with close ties to the Romney family are apparently big players in this business. And the Romney's Utah State campaign chairman was a guy who owns a bunch of these facilities. So it became somewhat of a number two. But it is Uh, something that gets almost... Yeah. But it is something that gets almost no mainstream attention except for once every couple of years when it somehow leaks into the mainstream consciousness and just something that I've always had in the back of my head is this is like, why does anybody allow this to exist? Yeah. I'm uh well, thank you, Jacob. I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to look more into that. I think it's a really good subject, especially if it's not getting the attention it deserves. Yeah. So I just thought that like, uh, would love to see, you know, any work or thoughts you had on that. And uh, I've you, got other things, but I will definitely. I, I've got other things on the agenda, but uh, I see there's a line, so I will dip out. Have a good evening, Jesse. Thanks for the call, Jacob. You too, Colin. What is up? Hey, Jesse. How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks. Um, I read French's uh, newsletter uh, as well. I thought it was really good. Um, it also kind of really depressed me because I don't really see a way out of that that sort of behavior. Um, Yeah. And I guess that's kind of my question. Like, I think he did a really good job diagnosing the problem and it's kind of a communication problem. And I agree that it stems a lot from sort of the Twitter discourse of like the fastest one that dunk gets the most reward. Um, Yeah. But it does seem like such an addictive problem and a problem that, gives you such a quick reward. I don't really see a way out of it. And I also, I also kind of think that there are, there are some times where, where things, points can be made in, in good faith. Um, uh, I'm thinking of your, your Patton Oswalt piece. And I think what you were, what you were doing was sort of pointing out sort of a hypocrisy and I think you were you were doing this more to make a point about how crazy it is for for some of these people to take the moral high ground on things, but it it can come off some sometimes, and it's not really criticism of of that piece that you wrote, but how Patton Oswalt is is um, was sort of moralizing about Dave Chappelle and trans issues, but at the same time he's he's. Uh, a spokesman for online gambling so it it can it can sort of stray into that lane of well yeah but look look who's talking you know uh yeah i may so so i guess in terms of how to fix it i just i find that um 
a lot of the times the issues where people do this are issues that are like things that the public is debating or the public is, is undecided. I, I mm-hmm. just, whenever possible, I try to point out like these are probably conversations you can't just avoid. And the, the transports thing is a good example where it's like one, you know, the, for lack of a better term, unwoke view is completely forbidden in progressive circles, mm-hmm. but that, that doesn't help if your goal is to, convince the public that we should make a certain set of policies on these issues. You can't forestall conversations forever and call process fouls forever. So that's easier said than done. But I think the actual argument about how to get out of that cycle is pretty important. And then there's the fact that like, there's a lot of a large and increasing number of venues where people are having these conversations because you can't really restrict what people talk about. Right. And I think we're kind of seeing the real world, but up against the Twitter world more and more. So I think, I think the, <laughs> The battle in the meat space is kind of just just beginning with um, with some of these issues now that we're seeing real world world consequences like with women swimming and stuff like that. Yep, yep. I agree All with right. you. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Tom. Andres, what is up? Hmm. Let me see if I uh, did that wrong. Andres, how's it going, man? Hey, Jesse, I think it's working now. There we go. Yeah, so um, I guess what this kind of got me thinking of was, like, I feel like there's oftentimes around these issues, too, like, a lot of, like, I guess, unsettled science that, like, if we're in the interest of, like, I guess, achieving, like, a better notion of justice or, like, what we're supposed to do about a lot of these social issues, like, we should probably flesh out, right? So I feel like some of these examples include, like, Anything from, like, you know, diving in deeper into, like, uh, you know, the different police statistics like you've done in some of your pieces or, like, you know, questioning stuff like different approaches to mental health or, like, psychological things like like you've talked about. Like, I thought one in particular was, like, that that's kind of interesting and, like, very poignant into that is, like, the issues that you've talked about with, like, self-ID with like kids and the best approaches to to do with that whether like you know it's like you should start transitioning or giving like more medical treatments if it's like a self-ID versus like they go through like a process or there's like standards to it and it's interesting that like even just having a discussion with the intent or like goal of reaching just like a better result or like better understanding than we have today is kind of like shut down and i feel like that discourse is like necessary to get there it's like a disservice to not have that yeah and i mean i think that's an example where like um who will get hurt longer on the people who get shitty medical care or the people whose medical care was influenced by like a really shrill political environment i i'll be fine i'm not the one who has to decide you know, what, what treatment to get. I, no, I think it, I mean, you could make the same argument about sort of defund the police or abolish the police. There's all these issues right. where like there's actual people's well being on the line. And if you can't have a policy um, discussion, where, how do you, how are you going to get to the best policy? Right. Totally. Um, yeah. I, th- I think like it, it, I feel like it just affects so many different things or even like things like climate change too like i thought it was interesting with the whole discourse around the uh, don't look up movie and like you know kind of like the meteor analogy not really fitting where like you know there's there's some reasonable things that we can do in the short run that don't require like entirely tearing down the system yeah i um well i have a whole other thing on uh, don't look up but i'll i'll save that for another day but uh thank you for the call i appreciate it yeah liz how's it going 
Hey, how's it going? Uh, I uh, think I successfully unmuted myself. Um, yep. Cool. Great. Um, so I'm a competitive athlete. Um, and this is something I think about a lot because I also have a lot of trans friends. Um, and I'm, I feel sort of like I have to be secretly um, like closeted about how troubled I am about this sort of like crossover of people like, you know, trans people in sports. Um, I just feel like the discussion is not as easy as we're making it seem or as activists are making it seem who are really being, I don't know, dismissive of the impact on athletes. I think the bigger impact is certainly on like, you know, I think we talk about trans athletes in sports, but the the bigger impact seems to be specifically male to female um, trans athletes. Yeah. And I guess I'm just curious from your perspective, since you know a lot more about the science at work. I mean, I saw the International Olympic Committee is leaning into requirements for trans athletes about, um, you know, testosterone suppression for male to female trans athletes to compete. Um, I just don't know enough about it to know whether this is something that I could even like reasonably wade into a discussion armed with the correct information. I know Carol Hooven's book sort of suggests that even if a person goes through a male puberty, the effects of testosterone suppression might not be enough to compensate for the discrepancy in sports. Yeah. So I guess I'm just looking for answers as someone who's like a trans supporter, but also is an athlete. And I know that male athletes are basically a different species from female what, athletes. <laughs> what kind of, uh, what kind of athletics do you do? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah. I'm a competitive rower and I'm an ultra runner. Oh, uh, an ultra runner. What's the longest you've run? 35 miles. Damn, I can't even imagine. I, uh, <laughs> that's impressive. Um, do you live in like a mountainous place or a flat place? I do. I'm in Seattle. So I live. Oh man. That's like serious ultra marathon. Um, yeah. People out here are, uh, they're into it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would basically defer to Carol in her book for the specifics on this. I, I think where the discussion was maybe a year or three ago was that some activists were saying that once your testosterone was suppressed, um, you know, that, that could even the playing field a bit. And, and I should say that there's all this sort of, in my view, rhetorical sort of nonsense going on with the concept of fairness. Like you'll see people say, well, what is fair? You know, LeBron James has a uh, incredible, insane body and insane. He's an insane athlete. That's not fair to people who are less athletic. That sort of misses the point in my view of like the reason we set aside a whole different category for women's sports. But Yes. There's a difference yeah. in like being gifted and talented and then having uh, access to genetic resources that your opponent does not have. Like there's a difference there that we can measure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so my sense is like that I don't you don't really see the argument as much that if someone's puber- um, hormones are suppressed for a year. This is the standard, I think, in, in the NCAA and, and maybe some Olympic events. And I'm not an expert on this stuff, but what happened in. Pennsylvania, UPenn is her testosterone was suppressed and then she was still dominant. And I, I think yeah. people now, I think there were always good reasons to think that that wouldn't work to even the playing field because the effects of, it's not just the effects of like free testosterone in your blood, it's what happens during puberty when you have right. an entirely different uh, body blueprint. Um, and, you know, things like the way your hips are shaped and just your lean muscle mass, stuff like that. It's just everyone knows that people develop differently at puberty. So my understanding is um, whatever the eventual answer is going to me, it's going to have to be a little bit more complicated than, Oh, you've been on, you've been on um, 
testosterone suppressants for a year. So you're good now. I just, I, I think we're going to, yeah. we've already seen evidence and we're going to see more that that's just not going to cut it is my understanding. Yeah. I mean, the other aspect of that is like, you know, as a, as a female athlete, like test, if I took supplemental testosterone, which many of my female to male transition friends are doing, that's considered a banned substance. And so it's almost, um, I feel These like were those, uh, those famous East German women's sports teams, <laughs> yeah. right? In the Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it really, um, it's a thing like testosterone matters, <laughs> like, you know, it, it, uh, for better or worse among our species, you know, it has a lot of impact. Um, I just, I guess I'm just hoping to, um, learn a little more about how to have a better conversation with my peers so that I don't just feel like I can't engage in the discussion, but I think we yeah, just all it, don't know enough yet is my feeling. Yeah. And I think it's hard because people will jump so quickly to the other obstacles trans people face, which they do, or, or, I mean, I've seen articles just very quickly jump to suicide. The idea that sports participation is like intimately tied to suicide. I, it's just, it's, it's such a morally loaded thing to talk about, but I, you know, there, there are absolutely trade-offs here. And it, if you care about women's sports, this is a proposed change to our understanding of sex and gender that I think would have an effect on women's sports. How big an effect and what the rules should be are difficult questions. But the, um, yeah, I mean, I'll wrap this up. But just watching, especially a year or two ago, all these outlets try to pretend that there's no argument here. It was just, uh, Orwellian doesn't do it justice. To watch mainstream <laughs> outlets claim that there isn't a difference between male adults, um, adult males and adult females when it comes to sports is just, uh, even as they're, raging often rightfully so about right-wing science denialism i just i couldn't believe that but um i'm starting to ramble so thank you for the call Liz. no no no. thanks i really appreciate it thanks check out carol's book if you haven't but it sounds like you may have yeah. um jane jane's jane s or jane's? yeah jane is fine it's not really my name but um you thank you for these spaces uh jesse this is great um for once, I'm actually not going to talk about the trans thing, even though, my God, it's on my mind all the time because I'm a school teacher. And I think I talked to you last time as a school teacher. But um, yeah. I missed the very front loaded part of what you were talking about. But I think I gathered what you meant by the process foul. And I didn't read French's piece yet, but I would go look for it. But one thing it made me think of, it made me think of those types of conversations where you're trying to have a nuanced discussion and the other person goes, well, so what you're saying is. And then they kind of like, you know, yeah, yeah they sort of pull it down to one thing that you're absolutely not. A straw manning, basically. Correct. Correct. And one thing in education that before COVID, before all of this, that um, I, I got into education very late in life. So only three and a half years ago. And prior to that, I was living in New York City. And now I live in, in rural Oregon. And um, one thing about this sort of process foul that I notice is there there's an uh, there's a there has been this overabundance, and I don't know what it was set up to remediate. I've been asking everybody since I sort of got into it, overabundance of like empathy-driven sort of style of not even teaching. And we were not even encouraged to teach. If I can just over and over again being told, you know, don't be the sage on the stage, be the guide on the side. And they want to lead you into this, you know, you want to set up critical thinking. Well, the way it looks is, you know, just set up a project and make them figure it out instead of teaching kids, literally teaching, you know, a 12 year old or 14 year old, what they need to know to maybe by the time they're 16, apply that knowledge. But the process foul that I see is, is in this hyper empathetic response to kids. And now that we were shut down for a year in, um, in Oregon and other states as well, and so now we're back in the building. We're seeing all kinds of weird behavior, not just the, the, the gender thing is definitely spiked. 
definitely spiked out here in this tiny little school that I'm in. But it's more than that, like just bad behavior, unsocialized behavior. And it almost seems like, well, the, the remedy, and I was even having a conversation with a colleague today because everyone's sort of been groomed into this. Well, more love, more empathy, more relationship, more social, emotional learning. They empower the administration by hiring more social workers, mental health experts. And, and it's just the, the, the more time goes by, the less content, the less knowledge, the less actual teaching is, is even being sort of um, developed in, in teachers and in teacher training programs. And it's really, it's really a process foul in that when you sort of bring that up, it's like, oh, well, so you don't agree that um, they have these really hard home lives. And it's like, well, no, I'm asking why we're not giving them homework because they need the homework to learn right. the content. And it's, well, their home lives are so broken. If they're not, all, they're not broken. They're, this idea of, if I were a writer, I'd write a book, you know, all the children are broken because that does seem to be the process, Val. And today, even with a colleague, they were like, you know, don't worry about teaching them anything. What? I, I'm thinking, we're, no, we need more. They yeah, said that? colleague said that. Don't worry about teaching them. It's it's all about, and, and it is. And now I've been deputized as a school teacher to be almost like a social worker once a week where we do this social-emotional learning lesson, which I lead. And it's like, educator, you're up. And so you give them three things in your life you're grateful for, and you hope that they're going to respond. But they're not listening. They're 10th graders. My kids are 10th graders. And I don't blame them for not listening. It's, it just ends up becoming a massively embarrassing me up there trying to, you know, make it interesting. And I, it, it, I, I'm not qualified for that. I'm, I teach a foreign language and that's what I'm supposed to be doing. And uh, I feel that, that I was never taught how to teach a foreign language. And the more you sort of push for rigor, the more you push for, well, why don't we focus on them actually learning something? It becomes, you know, even the math teacher has told me that they're, she's being advised to not buy anybody in the building, but to write, you know, math problems should always have, S Sally has five plates. How many plates, if they added more plates to their, you know, instead of saying she, you got to say they, or it, it's just, it's crazy to me, this infiltration of all this other stuff. And it's, and if you try to go, listen, I, I agree with the trauma informed um, work that we do to a certain extent, which is really big. Trauma-informed work is when, when I assume that, that there's more going on with my student than, than might appear on the surface. I, of course, agree with that, but they want to build policy on it. It's always being talked about. It's really, and, and yeah. then if you bring it up, it's, oh, you want to whack them with rulers? No, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not advocating for that. Uh, but, but my God. That sounds um, really, really frustrating. Uh, yeah, I, I can't even imagine to, trying to, well, first of all, I can't even imagine just teaching in this general situation with the pandemic just constantly looming over everything and disrupting stuff. But then um, I can see how, you know, a focus on empathy and understanding and addressing home lives can, can go too far. I, I haven't researched the history of American education much, but I, I did somewhat for a chapter on grit and, and it's striking how the American education system has, I think more so than other places, we really put the responsibility on schools to solve problems that, go well beyond the walls of schools. And I, I think we don't really have a good way of doing that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, thank you for the call, Jane. I, I'm sorry you're going through all that. It sounds nightmarish. Yeah. I shouldn't laugh. No, no, it's funny. I'm, I'm hoping that I think it's going to break. There's going to be a swing back at some point. There has to be. Yeah. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Kurt, you are next up. 
Kurt, you're going to want to unmute yourself if possible. There we go. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for taking the call. Uh, I one thing that keeps coming up in, in my mind with these kinds of discussions, and, and you know, um, I read the, the the article and it was spot on. I found myself agreeing with so much of it, but um, at least for me, you know, I'm a, I'm a conflict averse person. I like getting along with people, um, and so I think there's several results of this kind of process fell thinking. And, and one is which you, you really only empower the, if I'm being generous, you know, the, the uh, non-conflict averse people, if I was, you know, in my cups, I'd probably say, you know, the assholes, they're the ones who like, who, yeah. who, who are going to be speaking. So it's by definition, you are only really making space for the least agreeable people Totally around and and so it, yeah and 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 I I feel for the previous caller Jane because I uh, professionally it's, it's hard for me because I am an HR <laughs> so um, oh god I can't even imagine yeah and like I I, I I consider myself a reasonable person I'm actually in charge of diversity equity and inclusion at my company and and I think this is really important serious stuff but because it's really important yeah. serious you have to not be a child right so. Um, but like even leaving work stuff aside, um, just in personal life, I, I feel like because I'm not that aggressive, um, conflict uh, seeking person, I just don't say anything ever, like ever, like even even among really close friends, I just find myself not bothering, which is not a healthy way of dealing with it. But that nevertheless is the way I'm dealing with it. And I imagine that's the way a lot of people are dealing with it. I, I think that's what, what leads to like these really screwed up dynamics on a lot of issues is so many people, what possible incentive would you have to stick your head up and stick your neck out and talk about something where it's so morally charged and it's so obvious that if you have the wrong opinion, someone's going to you know swing an axe at you. So I, I think that really gives people um, this idea of pluralistic ignorance, of everyone having the wrong idea yes. of what the rest of the group thinks. And I, I think that's a big part of what's going on in a lot of dysfunctionally, socially dysfunctional places or politically dysfunctional places. Well, that was actually a point I wanted to make. And, and that was, the, and I won't take up much more time, but that was the next thing was I I lived in Romania for, for two years. And, um, and this was like 10 years after they stopped having a dictator. So this is, all, all the psychological wounds of the country were, were very fresh, right? They went from being a part of the Soviet Union to then having a dictator, and they'd only just gotten out of it. Dude, that like, video of Kochescu and his wife's like show trial and sentencing is some of the craziest historical footage I've ever seen. Yeah, it's uh, it's bananas. And like the anyway, I can go on about that. It's a super fascinating stuff. But but the point I wanted to make was, and I'm not like all not going like full Jordan Peterson and being like we're all going to be commies, but like I've. I've lived with people who held it in for their entire lives. And you don't, just, yeah. you don't just get over that. Like that, the, when I was there, the younger, like people who are under 25, they seemed like to me kind of like a normal American person, but anybody over the age of 25 just did never disagree with you in public. Nothing was done, which incidentally is like how corruption is bred nobody calls anything out like and it was a place with yeah. a lot of corruption like there's so much downstream i i think i'm not a, i'm not a doomer we're not you know we'll all be fine i'm sure but it, that doesn't mean there won't be scars and if 
if this is a blip of you know from 2015 on maybe we'll be fine but i think if this lasts for 15 years it's there's going to be at least a generation or two of it just bums me out to think that i'm going to see that in my country that 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 type of personality who anyway i'm rambling but that's that's all i really wanted to say yeah i mean the one thing i would say is that the uh, you know unless you live in like certain places where they can restrict what people can say even if you live in a situation where you find it hard to say what you want you have out you have outlets like you have outlets online you hey do you want to mute your phone i'm getting weird um uh you just there's so many outlets so i, I absolutely think it'd be fresh i can't imagine like for example if i went back and and was um you know, I worked at New York Magazine for a couple of years. I think a lot of these places now, it would be so hard to hold your tongue during editorial meetings, uh, basing that on the kind of garbage that gets published. But we live in a much better time in terms of, you know, you do have other outlets. You can find other people online. You can maybe become real-life friends with them if need be. So I wouldn't lose hope. I, I don't think the comparisons are entirely off-base because, like, all cycles of silence share certain things in, in have certain similarities. I really need caffeine. I can't even talk anymore. But um. Yeah, that, that's the only thing I'd say. Just just to end on uh, your call on an uplifting note, if that makes sense. No, I appreciate that. And, and what you've done here is make one of those outlets, which uh, I appreciate. Anyway, take care. Thank you. I appreciate that, Kurt. I'm glad you could join him. Shauna, what is up? Shauna was dropped. Shauna, feel free to jump back in the queue. Aaron, Aaron? If you want to unmute yourself, Aaron. There we go. It's Aaron. You got it, Jesse. Thanks. Aaron, there we go. So um, after the, uh, the, the David Zweig piece came out a few weeks ago, um, you know, about the CDC masking kids stuff, I've been thinking a lot about sending my seven and a half year old off to second grade, you know, double vaccinated seven and a half year old with a mask on, you know, and I know we're in the midst of this Omicron wave and it, you know, it would, it would seem unreasonable, I think, to change policy at this point. But it does seem to me like, we're really just masking kids now because it feels like the right thing to do. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I mean, I guess it's been, it's made me think how many over the course of the last two years, like how many COVID cases have really been prevented from kids wearing masks in school? You know, I mean, I've, we've had, uh, you know, maybe I think under 10 notifications maybe, in my kids' elementary school of any sort of COVID case of any character, of any, you know, of any person that's actually been on campus, let alone a student. And so there's been very little activity. And so it really feels to me like the masks have done absolutely nothing. So we've really been masking our kids for two years for nothing. And it feels a lot to me like it felt, you know, during the, during the lockdown a couple of years ago when you know, I, I went for six months without seeing my parents who live. Like the right thing to do. Hey, did I lose you? Hey, yes. sorry. I, yeah. You cut out at, um, you lost, you, you didn't see your parents who lived where? Yeah, they, they live within driving distance, but you know, we didn't, I didn't see them for six months because that's kind of what everybody was doing. And then when I did see the, see them again after that, it was, you know, without touching them, you know, with, you know, social distancing. <laughs> So, you know, but then nobody got COVID, like none of us were sick. So we'd been doing all this shit for absolutely nothing. So it just feels so stupid at this point. Yeah. Well, I mean, I agree with most of what you're saying on the last point. You you can't say that 
it was stupid because you didn't get COVID because that might be why you didn't get COVID, right? Especially when it was really bad. That's that's true for sure. That, that's definitely true. Yeah. But, you know, in, in hindsight, it just feels stupid to, to have gone through all that. Of, of course, there were a lot of people who did that, you know, and got together and then got their whole family sick, which would have been awful. Yeah, I was walking through Park Slope yesterday and I saw all these kids, I don't know, six or seven or eight, running around on a playground with masks on. Um, it just felt bad. It just seemed very unpleasant. And they're outside. Uh, it was like, uh, so I don't know, man. It, I, at this, it does seem like we're going to have to reach a point where you need to scale back some of these measures. I think the argument for masks early on is, especially if you have older teachers, especially before the vaccine, there might be cases where a kid, the kid is fine, but they pass it on to a teacher and they're, they get really sick or their life is really threatened. But when you're this far deep into vaccine world, uh, the number of things that would have to go wrong for an already mild strain to get passed from a kid to a vaccinated teacher uh, or a triple vax teacher. I, I don't know. I, I think I'm with you that that's really rare and I don't, yeah, I don't know how we, how we get out of this. And I, you know, I understand why people are concerned. Pandemics are very scary, but at a certain point, I think you need to look at the science, especially with Omicron being, um, being milder and especially with the fact that like it's different for a kid to wear a mask for days and days and weeks and years than it is for an adult to like you're, there's potential developmental issues so i think i'm just echoing back some of the frustration um you've been describing but but i hope you're hanging in there it sounds like there's a lot going on yeah no we're doing okay i mean my my kid's fine my you know my kid can read really well but i feel i really feel for all the kids who are trying to read you know, without being able to see their teacher's lips. It's, it's, it's completely ridiculous. It I mean, really it's, sucks. It's, yeah, but thanks, Jesse. Appreciate it. Thank you, Aaron. Shauna, how's it going? Okay, can I figure this out now? <laughs> you got it. And hey, let me just say, um, just because I got to do some work, Matt is going to be the last caller, so no one else getting the cue for tonight. Ah, uh, please. Go for it, Shauna. Yeah, just your token uh, normie here with the five-year-old kid with the glasses and mask. So feel the pain. Nice. <laughs> uh, but I already went on that rant separately. Um, I guess I did want to try to bring an uplifting note and just let you know that what you're doing, what David French, even if I don't agree with many of his writings, I always appreciate how eloquent he is and how thoughtful he is and thought-provoking he is. Very smart. And, yes. And so, I mean, again, I'm just you're like your token normie mom out here <laughs> in the crazy Pacific Northwest. But even though it, it seems so trivial, like there are a lot of us out here, like in the wilderness, so to speak, that um, and I think that you have found that through uh, obviously the podcast, your writings, your Substack, this, that there are people of all different backgrounds um, that are thirsty for this kind of intellectual conversation based upon interest and respect. Even when we may disagree, it's always met with a great deal of respect. And just for fun in the last week, so I have a newborn, so I spend I've been spending more time online because you just don't sleep when you have a newborn, but um, I'll give you an example. Oh, thanks. Um, so as an example, as a science experiment last week, I created a Twitter account because um, I was, I was curious. I mean, you talk about it a lot, obviously a lot of people are online 
with Twitter and um, just as a science experiment. And I can see now why people's brains melt after a while. Oh, it's terrible. So I'm just like scrolling and scrolling. And it's so hard not to just want to be snarky on on so much of it. So it it serves you up so much anger and toxicity that you can feel yourself like the, the gravity of it pulling your. Yes, yes. And so I just want you to know that that I mean, everyone who's doing that, you're not crazy for feeling that way. Because I know like I'm a pretty energetic, annoying, happy person. So um, if I can feel that temptation of just wanting to rain fire on as much snarkiness as I can. It's just, I mean, it is intoxicating. It really is. But all that to say is you obviously have an audience. David obviously has an audience. There is a thirst for some common sense. I live, you know, I I stalk Katie. I live out in the no man's land of Pacific Northwest. We, people are freaking crazy, but there are people who aren't crazy that. There's a lot of people aren't crazy. Yeah. There are businesses where we can go into and, if you know you're vaccinated or whatever, they don't require require you to wear a mask all the time or your kids, even if like they're supposed to. I mean, I know that that's, you know, it, it's based upon mutual trust, but it's also based upon the mutual understanding like, hey, these kids need some normalcy and I don't want my kid to I want my kid to know what it is to be resilient and and to have yeah. some like normalcy of life, even if that means quote unquote, breaking some rules. So I don't know. I just wanted to add that in there that there are um, some just plain normies. uh, I need a better term. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, Jesse. Have a good night. Keep being a normie. Nothing wrong with normies. We need normies. Hey, Jesse, can you hear me? Good. Um, So I also wanted to end on a... uh, bit less serious note. I have plenty of serious questions, but I'll save them for another uh, another episode. Um, I just wanted to know, what are your um, some of your favorite uh, haunts from uh, the time that you, I think you used to live in D.C., or you've been to D.C. on a regular basis? I don't remember exactly, but... Yeah, is that the Capitol building place? I see in your um, profile? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a, yeah, a one-note uh, fiddle on this kind of thing. Um, but yeah, what were some of your favorite haunts, and specifically... Uh, what was the best pizza that you think DC had to offer? If any. (laughs) So I lived there in my twenties for two years. You can't, you basically can't get a decent slice of pizza. I lived in Columbia Heights. So it was a place called Pete's that had New Haven style pizza. It's now a Wawa because that's the horrible Mm. universe we live in. Uh, Two Amy's in Friendship Heights, which assuming it still exists. Friendship or Tenley? Oh, it could be Tenley Town. I think it's Tenley Town, yeah. that was Somewhere like way up there in Northwest. When I was a kid, that was like the yeah. gourmet fancy pizza place to go. That would be top tier pizza in New York. It's like that good. I also, yeah. I really liked um, Sete in DuPont Circle. And then the Red Rocks in Columbia Heights is fine. And then, I loved, <clears throat> yeah. I loved Red Rocks. Which yeah. one? I, I used Red to Rocks is Columbia great. Heights. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then like the dive bar scene is pretty good. I would go to Solly's a lot, uh, Wonderland, which got pretty mm-hmm. douchey, and then Red Derby up on um I, you seem like a, a Mount Pleasant kind of guy. Uh and yeah, so, guy and, and sort of Northwest, yeah. And then um I mean the the real DC is really good for Mexican and Salvadorian food in a way New York isn't. That's one of the few areas and Ethiopian where they have it beat. So I like Yes, of course. I go to um 
what's the place called? Uh, Taqueria Habanero is really good. Distrito Federal. You know all these spots. Is Taqueria Habanero in on H Street? Or am I no, thinking, that's another um, Taqueria place. It's up 14th. It's right by Red Derby. Okay, yeah. I've gone to, I've gone to Red Derby. I haven't gone to much food around there. but uh, How long um, have you been in D.C.? Well, so I grew up uh, on the D.C. on like in Bethesda, so right in, on the border, right in Maryland. Um, and then nice. uh, I, I traveled around a little bit. Uh, went to college in New York, um, and then, uh, like a little bit after college, moved to DC proper. So I lived in Admo for a little bit, and lived in Columbia Heights, and right now I'm in the Union Market area. Nice. Yeah, it's. Um, I have some very fond memories of uh, of DC formative years there. Uh, anything else, Matt? Uh, no. I mean, no, nothing else. Uh, I think if you uh, if you're ever back in DC, you should try out Timber because um, that's also pretty decent that is good pizza i went there oh fuck what did i go there with this was like two or three years ago yes <clears> i went <throat> with my friend david uh timber was very good that that was like yes. straight uh, wait it was petworth like actual petworth right am i remember yeah right? petworth i think they yeah it's it's in petworth um i they might have another they i know they have another location in boston although i don't know why you would go to boston um and, i was yeah. very impressed with that <clears throat> timber yeah. i thought that was solid yeah yeah well they're the same people if you know call your mother the the yeah i tried to go to <laughs> we'll wrap this up i just feel bad because no yeah. one knows what we're yeah, yeah, yeah i i was in dc recently and then on my way back from boston i just stayed there one night at my friend's place because he wasn't there i tried to go to call your mother uh to try it because he lived near there the line was so long that i just didn't bother but uh the, the food scene there yes is call your mother's not, ridiculous line yeah yeah the food scene has got it much better but um anyway thank you for allowing me to reminisce matt i appreciate yeah for sure next time i promise right. not to take up so much time talking about dc no dude it's fine everyone uh, don't <laughs> worry about it all right vlad i said matt was gonna be the last one but i will give you the last word vlad how's it going hey uh yeah thanks um i I'm, I'm so tempted to to not even talk about what i what i wanted to talk about and just keep the topic as as pizza on the east coast because I, I grew up in queens <laughs> um Oh man! But uh, yeah, I, given the topic of the uh, of the what is it called a session, uh, a call-in post, how, how we defend ourselves from the truth, I thought a an appropriate yeah. plug to make and, and maybe get your your comments on if you've read it or not by now um, is is Scout Mindset by Julia Galef. Um I just uh, find that like one of the the best uh, recent short nonfiction books uh, released on the topic of like thought and. Um, it's it's it kind of um really encapsulates well the uh ethic and rationale and and practical guide thinking of of how to uh not do so many of the of the things you've been talking about and and callers have been talking about in this episode um it takes a lot of work and i think um it's easy to fool yourself into thinking you're the kind of person who who might not need to read such a book but I, I really yeah. recommend it to, to everyone. So I haven't read it. I've been on her podcast and I um, I met up with her once. She's great. She does really good work. I That book came out around the same time as mine did. I think it did much better. And I think deservedly so based on everything I've said. Was there any, what was like one sort of um, insight from it that stuck with you? Or I mean, I could be, I'm putting on you on the spot a little. So no worries if nothing comes to mind. I'm just- oh, no sweat. Uh, yeah, I guess the basic... Uh, 
I, I mean, there's a lot of like little uh, useful bits about um, about psychology and kind of thought in the real world. But I guess the core insight is that um, you've got to somehow, for one reason or another, find your own uh, way of emotionally managing yourself. It, it's kind of intuitive, uh, counterintuitive, because you think logic, you, you tend not to think emotions, but uh, it's, a, it's a problem of... Well, but emotion can lead you away from logic, right? Right, right. But, but summoning the fortitude to kind of have the courage to expose yourself to, um, to counterfactuals, to evidence that, that may not, that may move you to, to a different position and, and fundamentally like remaining always committed to knowing what is true yeah. uh, rather than having a preference for what will be true when you discover it. So that, that is a kind of emotional wrangling that I think she um, handles well and with a lot of examples and her TED talk kind of also falls. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm in the midst of, I'm trying to eat a little bit better in 2022 and it made me think about how it's easy to drown yourself in salad for like three or four days, but cultivating that as like a regular habit of like, I'm really going to change the way I eat. There's probably a parallel there where like, you're running against a lot of internal cognitive friction to really open yourself up to the possibility that you're wrong, especially being wrong on something like a lot of your friends and family members feel strongly about um, risking disagreement with them. So yeah, if that's any indication, I really should finally read this book. It, it was fantastic. And I, uh, I actually bought like my, I don't know how many by now, tw- 10 or a dozen copies for all my friends and, and sent them out and made it like awesome. a little one-time book club. We're going to talk about it next week. Before you, before you go, what is a um, pizza place in Queens I might not have heard of that, that deserves more recognition? Oh boy. Um, okay. I'm going to plug my, my neighborhood pizza spot. Uh, so I grew up on 108th street in Queens in the Baharian neighborhood. Uh, that's on Baharian. And, uh, uh, pizza and Pasta City is what it was called. Uh, pizza and Pasta City. Pizza, pizza and Pasta City, uh, 108th Street, and roughly uh, 60th or 62nd Drive, um, and 108th Street. Like in that in that neighborhood, uh, not exactly, definitely on 108, but not ne- like near 60th or 62nd. All right, man. Well, thank you for the recommendation. I I try to go to, I want to go to Queensmore if only because there's so much good stuff to eat there. Uh, Not that there isn't other stuff too, but um, I appreciate the call. All right, guys, I'm going to wrap it up there just because I'm um, I'm behind on stuff and I actually need to eat as well. Very hungry. Uh, But thank you guys for listening. As always, I would just ask if you enjoyed this, please spread the word about it. Get other people to... um, check out the show spread around the archived older episodes uh but yeah i really appreciate you listening and i hope your years are all off to a good start farewell